Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have five brand new movies to review for you. Actually, four of them are brand new from this week, and one of them actually came out last week, but I didn't get to review it until now. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Venom, Let There Be Carnage. This is the long-awaited sequel to the 2019 film Venom, starring Tom Hardy as Eddie Brock. And unlike previous incantations of Eddie Brock slash Venom, in this cinematic universe, which is a bit vague, um, whether or not it's connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe or not, Eddie Brock does not know Peter Parker. So Spider-Man is out of this story, the story of Venom from 2019, and the story of this movie, uh, 20 uh, Venom Let There Be Carnage, from 2021. But in addition to Venom making his return as a symbiote who has to live with Eddie Brock, and they make a very strange supernatural odd couple. There's also another character that's introduced by the name of Cletus Cassidy, and he is a serial killer who is portrayed in this movie by Woody Harrelson. And those people who stayed past the credits in the original Venom when it was released in 2019 would probably know one major difference between Woody Harrelson's cameo in Venom and his role in this movie. And this has actually been getting a lot of buzz on the web, but in Venom, when Woody Harrelson made his post-credits cameo, he had curly hair. And I haven't really read uh, the Spider-Man comics. I've read some, but not the ones with Venom in it. But apparently, the character of Cletus Cassidy actually has curly hair, but for some reason, Woody Harrelson decided to have his hair straight for this movie. It's a minor inconsistency, but it doesn't really take away from my enjoyment of the film at all. But Cletus Cassidy actually gets into an altercation with Eddie Brock when Eddie Brock, who's still working for the San Francisco Daily Bugle, and for those of you who are really familiar with various um, various types of media, Daily Bugle is a fictional paper. There is no newspaper that I know of or any publication that exists that's called the Daily Bugle, but it's usually one of those fictional newspapers in a wide array of movies, TV shows, novels, comics, you name the medium, they've probably used Daily Bugle uh, at, at least once. But in any event, Eddie Brock, played by Tom Hardy, is interviewing Cletus Cassidy in the days before Cletus Cassidy is being sent to die by way of lethal injection for all his past discretions. But... Cletus Cassidy gets into an altercation with Eddie Brock and ends up biting Eddie Brock's hand. And what results from that is that Cletus Cassidy, who's used to the taste of blood, tastes Eddie Brock's blood, and largely because of venom, he doesn't realize that there is a symbiote within Eddie Brock's blood. And when Cletus Cassidy intakes that blood of Tom Hardy... 
he also creates a symbiote himself, which is like Venom, except a lot more feral. And that symbiote is now named Carnage. So this is the fight that a lot of Marvel fans, not to mention a lot of movie fans, have been looking forward to seeing for quite some time. And I realized that I actually made an error. When I said Venom was the 2019 movie, it came out in 2018. I apologize for that. So it's been three years since the last Venom film. And does Venom have any connection to the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Well... This movie is a collaboration between uh, Sony Columbia Pictures and Marvel Studios, but it's kept ambiguous as to whether or not Eddie Brock lives in the same cinematic universe as Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, but there is a a hint I will not give away. I'm just going to get back to the story. So... Eddie Brock is still learning to live with Venom, the symbiote, and is also trying to keep Venom from murdering other people. But Venom has to eat brains, apparently, in order to live. And there's that conflict right there that actually gets forgotten about in various parts of the story where you'd think that if Venom was so thirsty or so hungry for brains, he would eat a lot more than he ultimately does. But there's another interesting subplot involving Cletus Cassidy, Woody Harrelson's character, and another supernatural misfit he knows who's also in prison because she's considered too dangerous by the name of Frances Barrison, who's played by an unrecognizable Naomi Harris. And Naomi Harris is a British actress who has been in such movies as 28 Days Later, Skyfall, and Moonlight. In fact, I believe she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for the movie Moonlight, which won Best Picture. So Naomi Harris is a great actress, and the fact that I did not recognize her as um, Frances Barrison in this film actually goes to show not only how good the makeup is, because she plays a woman who's missing an eye, but she also is really disappears into this character. Michelle Williams also returns in this movie as Eddie Brock's ex-fiancee, Anne Wang, and she serves as a valuable um, source for Eddie Brock for a number of reasons, including when Venom has a falling out with Eddie Brock and becomes a symbiote for whatever other bodies he can find. And there's also a very suspicious detective whose name is Detective Mulligan, who's played by Stephen Graham, who is monitoring Eddie Brock very closely, especially as Eddie Brock is interviewing Cletus Cassidy for the San Francisco Daily Bugle. So there is an epic fight at the very end between Venom and Carnage, to which... A lot of people were looking forward to seeing, but this movie falls, I think, short of how good it could have been and how epic the battle between Venom and Carnage would have been. The fact that they introduced Woody Harrelson as Cletus Cassidy in at the very end after the credits of Venom was was hinting, probably the biggest hint for how dynamic a villain 
Carnage was going to be since they introduced um, the uh, Thanos in the Avengers films. In fact, Thanos made a cameo post-credits at the end of the first Avengers movie, and that was obviously not his last appearance. So I expected Carnage to be as big a villain as Thanos. Maybe not quite as much, but it just seemed as though, even though the fight at the end between the two of them was very well choreographed and the setting of them being in a church certainly had its moments. I think maybe I was underwhelmed by Woody Harrelson not being particularly convincing as Cletus Cassidy, which is ironic because this is not the first time that Woody Harrelson has played a serial killer. He played the character of Mickey Knox in Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, and he was chilling in that film. He hasn't quite gotten that dark, but I was expecting him to get that dark for a villain like Cletus Cassidy, who seems to actually make Mickey Knox look like Pretty Boy Floyd in comparison. So I felt like there were some moments where his character could have been developed a lot more, and I think Woody Harrelson could have and should have been more sinister. And... I did like Naomi Harris as Frances Barrison. I just didn't like what happened to her character near the end. I also thought that they gave Venom a few more jokes than they did the the last movie. And there were some funny moments with uh, Venom in the last movie. But the thing was, the jokes that they had in the movie Venom, A fit Venom's character, and B, it didn't seem like he was trying to pull a Ryan Reynolds where he was trying to insert a clever line in just about every breathing moment he had. And I felt like in this one they tried to make Venom more lampoonish than the dark anti-hero he's supposed to be. So Venom Let There Be Carnage is not nearly as good as the original Venom. I did think that Tom Hardy did well as Eddie Brock. Some of the moments between him and Venom were good, as long as Venom was not trying to be comic relief. I did like Naomi Harris. I didn't think that Woody Harrelson was dark enough. And also, Michelle Williams' character is engaged to a guy who's ultimately a tool, which is ironic because Michelle Williams was in a movie that was directed by and starring Michael Showalter, which made fun of the other guy trope, uh, what was known in that movie as the Baxter, which was also the name of the film. So for Michelle Williams to have a a fiance who was just as formulaic and also a bit more bland than Michelle Williams deserves to have on camera, just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But with that said, I do think that the special effects and the fight between Venom and Carnage I think made up for what other character development could have lacked, which is why I'm giving Venom Let There Be Carnage my rating of a checkout. It promises a dynamic fight. 
it delivers that, but there were certain holes in the story and a lack of character development that d- that prevents me from giving Venom Let There Be Carnage my rating of a knockout, which is actually what I gave the original Venom movie because it embraced that anti-hero trope. Whereas in this movie, it seemed like it felt a little bit more ashamed of it or it thought that being an anti-hero and being dark and edgy wasn't enough. Whereas Woody Harrelson could have been darker and edgier, just like he was in Natural Born Killers. So, Venom Let There Be Carnage is serviceable, but it's just not great. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Addams Family 2, which is the animated movie that is a sequel to the 2019 Addams Family reboot. It wasn't so much a remake of the 1991 live-action Addams Family movie, even though it ter- took a certain amount of inspiration from that movie, but... It's the the sequel has been actually pretty well awaited and I have a soft spot in my heart for the original uh live action Adams family movie that there were two movies there was Adams family from 1991 and and Adams family values from 1993 there would have been more Adams family sequels I think there would have been at least one more if Raul Julia, who defined Gomez Adams, had not passed away. And it's really sad and unfortunate that he did. But it, it does go without saying that Oscar Isaac, who provides the voice for Gomez Adams in this movie, as well as the previous 2019 film, uh, takes a lot of inspiration from Raul Julia's um previous incantation of Gomez Adams, and who could blame Oscar Isaac for doing so? And there are lots of people from the original Adams Family animated film from 2019 who reprise their roles in this movie. As I said, Oscar Isaac provides the voice of Gomez Adams, Charlize Theron provides the voice of Morticia, Chloe Grace Moretz provides the voice of Wednesday, Bette Midler is Grandmama, Nick Kroll is Uncle Fester, and last but certainly not least, um, Snoop Dogg provides the voice of Cousin It, although you probably wouldn't know that because Snoop Dogg's voice is sped up. But in this film, they take a rather outlandish story and put it into animated form in a way that I really don't think any live-action adaptation could do, but... I really did enjoy how this animated movie, I think, in, um, invited the absurd and <laughs> phenomenal a, a lot more, actually, than the original Adams Family animated movie did. So in this film, it is suggested that Wednesday Adams was switched at birth. Not the most convincing uh, plot, because... 
in every incantation of the Adams family, whether it was Charles Adams, original New Yorker comics, or the live action TV show, the live action movie, or the animated um, show, Wednesday Adams is the spitting image of Morticia Adams. Every time, no exception. So you're led not to believe that Wednesday Adams is somebody else's child and was accidentally switched at birth. But there is a character in this film who is a mad scientist who wants the Adams family to believe this. And the plot is, as I said, very outlandish, but it also opens itself up to a lot of cartoonish antics. And one thing I really like is when computer animated movies, like, for example, Hotel Transylvania is a great example of this, have enough fluidity in their animation to become just as wild as a lot of the Looney Tunes cartoons. As a matter of fact, there are sight gags in this movie with Uncle Fester in particular because there's a subplot involving a scientific experiment with him that um, invites a lot of (laughs) comedic gags that are very fluid and very animated. But there's also a gag involving Wednesday Adams and a voodoo doll, particularly a voodoo doll of of her brother, Pugsley. And it is very funny when the Adams family goes on vacation, because that's the premise of this movie. They go on vacation, then they visit a lot of landmarks, like, for instance, Niagara Falls. And when Wednesday Adams takes the voodoo doll of Pugsley Adams and throws it into the waterfall. Guess who also goes into the waterfall? Yeah, you guessed it. But what happens when she throws it and Pugsley uh, goes in after it, despite him not wanting to do so because it is a voodoo doll and he just does what (laughs) the voodoo doll, um, or what Wednesday does to the voodoo doll. What happens afterwards is not just him falling. There's, there's a lot of really good, uh, sight gags that really work and it had me laughing as well. And as the Adams family are going on vacation on in a, um, in a, in an RV that looks very macabre and Gothic and puts the Munsters Dragula vehicle to shame. There is also a lawyer who's voiced by Wallace Shawn, who is going after the Adams family because this rich scientist is hiring him to assess the validity of Wednesday Adams being his real daughter. What happens after that when they actually meet the scientist and they learn some of his creations is certainly weird, but I liked it. I thought it was a good kind of weird. The Adams family is a weird family, and it's great when they actually meet other weirdos. So I love the animation. I love the premise of them going on vacation and going out into the real world, which is one of the strengths of the movie Adam's Family Values in particular. The original Adam's Family was good, but Adam's Family Values was better. Would I say that Adam's Family 2 is better than the original animated Adam's Family movie from 2019? No, I actually think that the the plot of the original Adam's Family movie, not to mention some of the visual gags within the Adam's Family house, worked better 
I think in that film, but it didn't take away from my enjoyment of Adam's family Two, which is why Adam's family two is getting, getting my rating of a knockout. It is a very fun movie to watch. It has great animation, has some great fluidity to the CGI animation that, uh, not a lot of CGI animated films, even those by Pixar generally has, but it embraces the lunacy of the Adams family. And it has a very lampoonish plot that wouldn't work in a live action film, but certainly works in an animated one. And for that reason, I recommend Adams family too. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Many Saints of Newark. And this is a movie that has been long awaited, particularly because it is a sequel, or rather a prequel, to the Sopranos series. The series that aired on HBO from 1999 to 2007 and really did revolutionize TV. It, it broke a lot of rules that a lot of network shows couldn't do. And it was a show that I was hooked on while it was on. But in this movie, we're not only introduced to uh, Tony Soprano as a child, who's played in teenage form by Michael Gandolfini. And if you're wondering if he's related to James Gandolfini, he is. As a matter of fact, Michael Gandolfini is the late James Gandolfini's son, who I don't think had any prior acting experience. But in addition to it being about Tony Soprano, Tony Soprano is actually more of a supporting performer in this movie. It's actually about Tony Soprano's surrogate father and mentor whose name is Dickie Moltisanti. Now, those of you who are very well versed in Sopranos trivia will know that Dickie Moltisanti was not actually a character on um, The Sopranos, but he was mentioned constantly. In fact, one of the primary reasons he was mentioned was because there is another Moltisanti, Christopher Moltisanti, who was Tony Soprano's nephew, and he was played by Michael Imperioli. And Michael Imperioli in this in this film doesn't make a cameo, but he does narrate parts of the film. And you realize the influence that Dickie Moltisanti had on a very young Tony Soprano. And you also learn about his father, uh, Hollywood Dick Moltisanti, who is played by Ray Liotta. And also, Ray Liotta plays two people. He, he plays... Uh, strangely enough, Dick Moltisante's father, and he also plays a mentor of Dickie Moltisante who's serving time in prison. Dickie Moltisante, by the way, is played by Alessandro Nivola. And the role of Tony Soprano's actual father, Johnny Soprano, who's absent from Tony Soprano's life because he's serving time in prison during Tony Soprano's formative years, is played by John Bernthal. But 
Alessandro Nivola is the primary focus of this movie. And you also are introduced to a young uh, junior soprano who is uh, Johnny Soprano's brother, who is played in this film by Corey Stahl. But Junior Soprano is a major character in the Sopranos show. You, you learn a lot about some of these characters. Some of them you know from the Sopranos if you were watching, and others are characters that um, certainly have an impact on the main characters of the Sopranos, but don't actually um, appear on the show. But I was still taken in by the story. However, I did think uh, Alessandro Nivola wasn't the best person to play Dickie Moltisante. I actually thought he was a bit bland. And there were moments of drama with him and other people where I just felt like Alessandro Nivola disappeared into the background. I did think that John Bernthal did well as Johnny Soprano. Vera Farmiga plays Tony Soprano's mother, Livia Soprano. But the biggest surprise in this movie of all was Michael Gandolfini as the teenage Tony Soprano. Michael Gandolfini, and I said this before, had some very big shoes to fill when he took over the role of his father. But as I was watching the film... I began to think less, that's more somebody imitating Tony Soprano. And I, Michael Gandolfini had me convinced that he was a, a young Tony Soprano. I never thought to myself for a second that Michael Gandolfini got this role from nepotism, which may have been part of it. He certainly has the look of James Gandolfini, or at least could pass for a relative of his, let alone his son, but I was really taken in by his performance and I thought he did an amazing job. I also liked the performance of the actress, uh, Michela de, de Rossi, who plays, uh, Giuseppina Moltisante, who is actually Dickie Moltisante's stepmother at first, but in a weird Shakespearean Greek tragedy kind of way, she ultimately becomes his wife. And she certainly has a lot of uh, um, <laughs> good scenes in this film. And she actually reminded me a lot, and I, I make this favorable comparison to Lorraine Bracco as uh, Karen Hill in Goodfellas. And especially with Ray Liotta in uh, not one but two supporting performances, I did anticipate that The Many Saints of Newark might be like Goodfellas and other gangster films, particularly those directed by Martin Scorsese. And certainly the Martin Scorsese influence is here. It was also evident in the, um, uh, the Sopranos show as well. After all, there were several supporting actors on The Sopranos um, that also made appearances... Uh, very brief appearances, nonetheless, but still memorable appearances in Goodfellas. So the Martin Scorsese influence can't be denied, but I did really like the story. The only thing was I didn't really buy Alessandro Nivola as Dickie Moltisanti. I do think they could have cast somebody a lot better in that role, but that was really my only 
moment of disappointment in the film, but he did carry the film. He was supposed to carry the film. And I think that if it had more focus on a young Tony Soprano and put Michael Gandolfini in the driver's seat, I think it actually might've been a slightly better film. But again, I I think that Dickie Moltisanti was too important a character for Alessandro Nivola to underplay him the way he did, which is really unfortunate because I felt like every other uh, character in this film brought their A-game. And I should also mention a subplot involving the black members uh, or the black community members of Newark, New Jersey, um, particularly Harold McBrayer, who's played in this movie by Leslie Odom Jr., who is one of the actors who got his breakthrough in the Broadway musical Hamilton. But he's a really good screen actor in his own right. And I actually found his subplot very intriguing. And I I hope that um, writer David Chase actually writes a movie about Leslie Odom Jr.'s character and some of his counterparts as well. So... This movie would be a knockout if it wasn't for Alessandro uh, Nivola, but I, I give it a, a high checkout because the, the lead actor should have been better, but everything else about it, about the show, was good. I especially loved the opening shot of the uh, of a cemetery, which really set in motion some of the uh, plot elements in this movie, as well as the perspective of the person who is telling the story about his background. So the many saints of Newark faltered from the actor they got to play Dickie Moltisanti, but overall I can't say it was a bad film. Welcome back to Words on Film, uh, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is the documentary Britney vs. Spears. And this is a documentary that premiered on Netflix on September 28th, 2021. And it tells a far more intriguing story than I actually anticipated. And it also will probably make people think twice about aspiring to become a superstar in the music business, which I think is a lot of people's fantasies, particularly Americans. But when you get to the top, there is a price that you pay. And there certainly was a price that Britney Spears appeared to play for, appeared to pay, excuse me, uh, from 
2007 to just recently when she was relieved of her conservatorship. But the documentary Britney vs. Spears is not the TMZ schlock gossip that I anticipated it would be. It actually reveals some very troubling legal secrets about Britney Spears and why she was in a conservatorship with her father, Jamie Spears, which ultimately made me feel really bad for Britney Spears. And it's very hard to review a documentary like this without revealing my feelings about Britney Spears. And the truth is, I like Britney Spears. I like some of her music, even though I think in high school, particularly where I was a metalhead, she was a guilty pleasure, but it was far more acceptable to like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and a couple of other uh, female starlets than it was to like the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC, which I don't, I never have, and I never will. But Britney Spears is certainly talented. She has great songwriting capabilities, not to mention she's got great dance moves and she's gorgeous and still is after all these years. Um, and this year she turns 40, interestingly enough, and yeah, she still looks great. But when I watched this documentary, I felt bad for her, especially when filmmaker Aaron Lee Carr and journalist Jenny Aliscu begin to investigate Britney Spears' fight for freedom by way of exclusive interviews and confidential evidence. And very similar to other documentaries I've seen, like the one about Bob Ross, uh, which also aired on Netflix a little while ago, even though you would think that there would be so many people who know Britney Spears personally who would come forward and be interviewed for this documentary, there were a lot of people who did not get interviewed. And even though there might be lawsuits that prevent them from being interviewed, for example, the, the journalistic and legal evidence seems to suggest that there might have been something a lot more sinister and a lot greedier behind Britney Spears' conservativeship um, than a lot of people might think. In fact, in this documentary, as Jenny Aliscu is going through a lot of the legal documents that were actually sealed previously, she encounters some very troubling legal language from both uh, Spears herself, her father, and some of uh, the attorneys that represent her. And I'm trying not to get my personal views mixed into this, but I do remember 2007 very well. I was 24 years old. I was living in Portland, Maine. I was living off of pasta and tuna fish in an apartment I couldn't afford. And I was really scraping by to make ends meet. I was also working for an organization that turned me down for not one, not two, not three promotions. So I didn't have any sympathy for people who made a lot of money and were heard on the news all the time. But Britney Spears was the exception to that rule because I knew she was going through some messed up um, times. I, I remember when she shaved her head and I remember when she attacked a paparazzi's car with an umbrella, and I never thought to myself, she's going insane. Every moment of footage I saw from Britney Spears when she was doing something mundane like driving or going to the drugstore, 
there were always at least three photographers that were photographing her and that clicking and the flashing made me wonder what these cameramen needed that they needed so many pictures of a less than glamorous Britney Spears just doing mundane things. It's not so much the fault of the photographers, although they are culpable and complicit, but of the the gossip publications that pay sometimes literally six figures for some of these photographs, and then they publish them in, in magazines that um, you, you can't escape because everybody needs to go to the grocery store and get groceries. And guess where these magazines are? Yeah, right there on those shelves. And I remember feeling really bad for Britney Spears. People seem to be making a lot of assumptions about her, about her character, about her sanity. And I even remember thinking back then when I was 24, yeah, she has a lot of money. Yes, she has fame and fortune. But if people who are photographing you, people are photographing you 24 seven and won't leave you alone. Yeah. Who wouldn't go insane? And I also remember that 2007 when I was 24 was also 10 years since the death of princess Diana who died after paparazzi was vigorously following her. And it seemed like 10 years later, the paparazzi did not learn their lesson. I would have been saddened, but I would not have been surprised if Britney Spears had died in a car accident, for example. Because she, even when she was driving, she did some dangerous things like run stoplights just to get away from these paparazzi photographers. So it was very understandable why Britney Spears acted the way she did. And shame on the the publishers and the gossip columnists and those second-rate hacks on VH1 who just trashed her because she was famous for making judgments about her and also for photographing very private regions of Britney Spears' body. Like, for instance, one of the most published photographs of 2007 was Britney Spears not wearing underwear, and you could see her nether regions. That should not have been published, and Britney Spears had every right to be frustrated by that. But it seemed like her father and some other nefarious people used that as an excuse to control her. And Britney Spears still hasn't quite recovered from that, but I think people are hoping that she does. She's still been making music, and she's been a mainstay in Las Vegas. But this documentary really shows the ugly side of Hollywood and how even people close to you, including your own family, can be disgustingly motivated by greed. And this documentary seems to point to the idea that even people who wanted to help Britney Spears couldn't because of undue influences. And there was one particularly disturbing legal document which detailed how Britney Spears was trying to get trying to fire her court-appointed attorney but couldn't. 
Now, not only is it weird how she would have the final say and she could have any uh, attorney she would need, she could have, you know, a, a defense team similar to that of O.J. Simpson, if not better. So why does she have, why is she who has an empire based on her name and has made millions of dollars, why does she have a court-appointed attorney? That's disturbing. And that it barely even scratches the surface. So Britney Spears, or rather Britney versus Spears, the documentary, details some gossip, but again, it's mostly pertaining to her, not her mental state, but what has been used as an excuse for her mental state in order to take advantage of her legally and financially. And truth be told, even though there are two sides to every story, and we haven't heard Jamie Spears' account of why his conservatorship was necessary, we probably will hear why his conservatorship was necessary. But from what I know, shame on him. But not shame on this documentary. It gets my reading of a knockout. It is disturbing, but I... Hope that people watch it and realize that the entertainment industry is full of vultures. It is full of freeloaders. And there are legal precedences that some shady lawyers undergo in order to take advantage of people who have legitimately made a name for themselves. It's going to serve as a cautionary tale for anybody who wants to get into entertainment, but it's not by any stretch of the imagination a bad documentary. It's just what happened with the people in Britney Spears inner circle who should have been her confidants, but who blatantly took advantage of that. It's really shameful. And I give Britney versus Spears credit for bringing this to light, even though it's really ugly. What comes to light. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. I said earlier in the show that I have five new movies to review for you, but unfortunately, technical difficulties have prevented me from giving you information about that fifth movie. The movie I was going to review is The Starling, starring Melissa McCarthy, Michael O'Dowd, and other actors, but I don't have information about that because the internet crapped out on me again. I am, it really frustrates me that the internet's doing that. And I know it's not my computer because my cell phone has also crapped out on me. So I'm going to get into my segment of what's coming up next because I actually prepared to do this document or rather documentary, do this segment of the show. And there's one huge movie that's coming out the weekend of October 8th, 2021. And that movie is No Time to Die. No Time to Die is the 25th James Bond movie, or at least the 25th 
official James Bond movie and the fifth James Bond movie to star Daniel Craig as 007. And by all reports, I believe this is going to be Daniel Craig's last movie as James Bond, but uh, don't quote me on that. A lot of people said that his last 007 movie, Spectre, was going to be his last. There was speculation that that was going to be. But Daniel Craig has done such a great job playing James Bond. I think he's... I think it's a little bit hard to say, but I... He's not better than Sean Connery. And maybe on par with Roger Moore. He's been better than Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan made a a great 007, by the way. Certainly better than George Lazenby and Timothy Dalton. And what's interesting is that a lot of people counted Daniel Craig out when he first was cast as 007. One of the big reasons was because... Daniel Craig stands at five foot eleven, and I'm not making this up. He is the shortest person at five foot eleven to have played James Bond. Every other actor who played James Bond was six feet tall or taller. But I think that Daniel Craig has proven that size does not exactly matter. But in No Time to Die, the 25th James Bond movie and the fifth one starring Daniel Craig and also his 15th year playing 007, James Bond has actually left active service. His piece is short-lived when Felix Leader, an old friend from the CIA, turns up and asking for help, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. The director of this James Bond film is Kerry Joji Fukunaga, and No Time to Die was originally scheduled to be released last year, 2020, but we all know why that didn't happen. But the movie stars Daniel Craig, of course, which could be his last time playing 007, but he certainly has earned, um, <laughs> he, he certainly has filled that tuxedo very well. The movie also stars Ana de Armas, Rami Malek, and Leah Seydoux. I'm very excited to see No Time to Die. I will see it, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to be released on October 8th is a film that's called Lamb. It's a movie about a childless couple whose names are Maria and Ingvar who discover a mysterious newborn on their farm in Iceland. The unexpected prospect of family life brings them much joy before ultimately destroying them. (laughs) Those last four words of that premise actually gave me chills. The uh, Maria character in this film, I wouldn't expect to go to Iceland and find a woman named Maria, but, well, goes to show you how little I know about Iceland. She's played by actress Nomi Rapace, who is the first actress to play the uh, titular character in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, as well as its sequels, all of which were based on books by Stig Larsson. And the director of this film is uh, Valdemar Johansson, who I believe is also Icelandic. If he's not Icelandic, based on his name, he's probably Scandinavian. There are other actors in this film, but they are Icelandic, and they have very thick Icelandic names. So, not to be xenophobic, but I'm not going to read the names because I know I will screw them up. But Lamb sounds like a very intriguing movie. 
It certainly sounds very similar to in presence to or in premise to the omen as well as other movies about sinister children. But the, the description also didn't say that the problem with this film was the child itself. In other words, the child may not be cursed, but there may be other elements that destroy this childless couple. I don't know if I'm going to see this film. I don't know if it's coming out in theaters near me, but I'll try to see it. And if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be released in 20, uh, rather October 8th, 2021 is a documentary that is called the rescue. And this follows the story of the wild boars, youth soccer team who got trapped, how they got trapped. I don't exactly know. And their dramatic 2018 rescue. The documentary is directed by Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vasarhali, uh, Vas, Vasarhali, excuse me. And the movie is a documentary, so it doesn't exactly star anyone. It is a National Geographic documentary, so you know National Geographic sets the bar pretty high for their documentaries. I'm intrigued to see this. I would be very interested in doing so, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's subject to be released in theaters is a movie that's called South of Heaven. It's about a convicted felon by the name of Jimmy who gets early parole after serving 12 years for armed robbery. He must have robbed a bank. Upon his release, he vows to give Annie, his childhood love, now dying from cancer, the best last year of her life. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. But that's all I can tell you about that premise. And this is an action crime drama that stars, of all people, Jason Sudeikis as the convicted felon, Jimmy. It's kind of surprising because I've only seen Jason Sudeikis in comedies up to this point. And I would not have expected Jason Sudeikis, who I like very much, by the way. I've liked him ever since I saw him on Saturday Night Live. And he certainly uh, gave, not only is a good dramatic, a good actor, not to mention a good comedic actor in his own right, but he also, very much like Phil Hartman and Kevin Nealon before him, gave SNL some much-needed maturity. And since he joined the cast in 2005, SNL got exponentially better than in previous years. I'm very interested to see how he does as a dramatic actor. The movie also stars Evangeline Lilly, Shea Wigman, excuse me, Shea Wiggum, and Mike Coulter. So South of Heaven, I hope, comes out in the theater near me, but I can't guarantee that it will. But if it does, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters on October 8th is a movie that's called Mass, M-A-S-S. This is the aftermath of a violent tragedy that affects the lives of two couples in different ways. The movie stars Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton, Ann Dowd, and Reed Burney. Uh, Jason Isaacs I'm vaguely familiar with. I know Martha Plimpton very well, particularly in movies like Parenthood, and also one John Waters movie she did called Pecker, which was surprisingly good. Uh, Anne Dowd, I've seen it act very well in movies like Hereditary, for instance. I'm interested to see this. I can't guarantee it's going to come out in a theater near me, but if it does, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. 
The last movie that is subject to be released on October 8th in theaters is a movie that's called Survive the Game. This is about a man's life on his farm that is interrupted when a cop and a pair of dangerous criminals show up. The movie stars Bruce Willis, Chad Michael Murray, uh, Sarah Romer, and Donna DiErico. Donna DiErico is a, is a name I have not heard for a very long time. Donna DiErico was one of the uh, Baywatch uh, women in the uh, One Piece red bathing suit, which, despite the fact that it wasn't very revealing, was revealing enough and certainly um, had the fantasies of a lot of boys who grew up in the 90s, like ones who grew up in rural Maine, <laughs> for example. Uh, and I know that Bruce Willis is in kind of a career rut right now. He's been in movie after movie that haven't done particularly well. In fact, I think he his a movie he made last year made a lot of critics top 10 worst films of 2020. But it really goes to show you how bad they were because as an amateur film critic like I am, I not only did I not see these Bruce Willis movies, I also didn't even know they existed until I saw them on some of these worst of lists. So survive the game has a generic title. It's great to see Chad Michael Murray in something else other than one tree Hill or one of those uh, teen dramas. And it shows that he's growing up, but Bruce Willis has kind of become box office poison over the last few years, which makes me doubt that I'm going to see this movie in theaters. I'm not saying anything bad about Bruce Willis himself. I just think he's in a career rut, which out of which he might break. But, you know, at least he has some classic movies like the first three Die Hard movies, for example, and a few others like The Last Boy Scout under his belt. So he has cemented a legacy for himself. I hope he makes a comeback, but if he doesn't, at least he has that. But Survive the Game is a movie that might come out in theater near me, but I'm not holding my breath, nor am I exactly holding my breath to see it either. So those are the movies that are subject to be released in theaters. Let me give you a rundown of movies that are subject to be released on streaming platforms with what little time I have. And since I only have a few minutes, I'll get into the movies that are coming out on Netflix on Friday, October 8th. There is one film that is appearing on Netflix, but is not a Netflix original, and it's called LOL Surprise, the movie. This sounds like a Nickelodeon film, and it sounds like one I will not enjoy. So I can't exactly tell you that I'm going to be seeing that one. There's a film that's going to be premiering that is a Netflix original that's called Pokemon the Movie, Secrets of the Jungle, which I will tell you right off the bat, I will not see because Pokemon is not, nor has it ever been, my thing. Another movie that's going to be premiering is one called Grudge Kin, and it's spelled Grudge slash Kin, Kin spelled K-I-N. I don't have the internet, so I can't tell you what that movie's about. It sounds kind of like a horror film, but I can't tell you otherwise. I'll look out for it and I'll let you know what I think. And there's another film that sounds like a drama, although it could be could be comedy, could be horror, I don't know. The movie is called My Brother, My Sister. So Grudge, excuse me, Grudgekin, My Brother, My Sister, and Pokemon the Movie, Secrets of the Jungle, are all Netflix originals that will be premiering on Netflix on Friday, October 8th. 
I anticipate that I will see at least one of those films, and if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.